Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, not by might or by power, but by your Spirit, Lord. And so, Lord, give us help uh, to see your word, to hear your voice. We ask this in your name. Amen. This is the part of the church service where everyone coughs. Yeah. <coughs> there we go. Blended right in. Okay. Um, some dates stick out in our minds more than others. They stand out as turning points that without them our lives would look very, very different. The 9th of the 12th, 09, is my wedding day. Uh, a life changer. I knew it at that time. That makes tomorrow uh, 10th wedding anniversary. Um, pray for Ruth. She's, she could have killed me and been out by now. But um, The 15th of the 605 was our first date. I didn't know it at the time how big a date that war would have been. And then there's Sophie's birthday, March 23rd. Bethany's birthday, October 13th. Some days have a way of ingraining themselves in our lives, in our memories. Today we're going to talk about one of Paul's life-changing moments as he talks about getting caught up into the third heaven. Now, he gives us very little information about that, which is infuriating. I would love for Paul to say, okay, I saw heaven. Let me break it down for you. Let me show you what I saw. Let me tell you. He doesn't do that, which is just so frustrating. He just throws it in there. Oh, you know, by the way, this happened. Moving on. It's like, no, don't move on. Now, the context of this is he's still dealing with the false teachers, the false prophets that are working in Corinth. They've come in and they're talking about their credentials, their doctorates, their letters, their recommendations, their human qualifications. And then they're turning around and saying, okay, Paul, where's your qualifications? What have you got to offer? So Paul's coming to this chapter and he's not looking to brag. He's not excited about this. He's reluctant. And he's responding then to saying, okay, you have human credentials. That's great. But I got spiritual ones. And spiritual credentials trump your human ones. Let's, let's get into this. Verse one, though I must go on boasting, Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. But God knows. And he heard that things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Something we should mention here before we go on. Paul's not a spiritual lightweight. Sometimes we think that Paul, okay, yes, he's got the theology, he's a thinker, he's a preacher, he's a teacher, but he doesn't have the sort of the magical experiences, if you forgive me for using that term. He doesn't have the miracles. He doesn't have the signs and the wonders. But that's not true. Paul's life was marked by a series of miraculous events. 
His, his conversion on the road to Damascus was the most famous one. In Acts 9, being knocked off his horse, being blinded, and hearing Christ speak, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he was blind for a couple of days, and in his blindness, he got another vision of Ananias, who was going to come and meet with him and disciple him and then heal him. In Acts 16, we have the vision of the Macedonian man calling him and saying, come to us, preach the gospel. When he was in Corinth the first time in Acts 18, Jesus himself shows up again and speaks to him, saying, the Lord has said to Paul, do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Same happened in Jerusalem in Acts 23. and on a ship that was about to go down in in Acts 27. And those are just the visions. That's before we talk about earthquakes breaking him out of prison, before angels broke him out of prison, before surviving poisonous snake bites, and on and on and on we could go. But what makes this vision in 2 Corinthians 12 of the third heaven so unique is that he doesn't mention it anywhere else. He doesn't raise it up in Acts. He doesn't flag it up anywhere This is the only reference to it. Now he admits he doesn't fully understand it. Was it a physical thing? Was I physically there? Or was I kind of just mentally kind of given a vision of it? He says, I don't know. But he talks about himself in the third person. In verse 5, of such a person I will boast. (laughs) It's me. I'm the guy. It's me. This was a traditional rabbinical way of dealing with sensitive issues. (coughs) The rabbi would tell the story, give the scenario, and talk about the third person, and then say, and look, full disclosure, it's me. Here's the thing. It happened 14 years ago, and he's only mentioning it now. That would date that vision around AD 43, somewhere in around there, It's hard to place in Paul's timeline. People have different ideas. Um, Some would say that this experience was, happened just as he was being stoned to death, and and this obviously not to death, but he was stoned and left for dead outside Lystra. They stoned him, they pelted him with rocks. They They were satisfied that they had done enough to kill him and they left. And the suggestion is that in that moment, Paul was transported and had the vision of heaven. I don't know. What I do think is, if that is true, I would be raging if I was Paul. Imagine thinking, ah, this is really hurtful, this is really sore, this is really painful, ah, I'm dead, I'm dead. Oh, heaven, oh, wow, oh, I've done it, I've run my race, praise the Lord, thank you, I'm glad to be here. Oh, no, actually, Paul, you're not staying, Um, I'm going to send you back. Oh, man, what? Oh, and by the way, yeah, you're not actually dead, you're just going to have months and months and months of really painful rehab to go through. Oh, man, what are you doing to me? I would be raging, but anyway. Maybe that's what influenced him though. This is the vision and this is the scenario that influenced him though whenever he spoke to the Philippians and said, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. I know it. I've seen it. I've experienced it already. I've been there. Listen, what lies ahead is so much better than what's here. Now, there's three levels of heaven. The first is the atmospheric heaven. That's where the birds live. In Genesis 6, in relation to the flood, God says... 
I'll destroy what I've created, humans and beasts, the creepy things, and the birds of heaven. So it's in first heaven. The second heaven is the celestial heavens, space. Uh, warning against worshipping the sun and the moon. In Deuteronomy 4 we read, Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and moon and stars and the host of heaven, you may be drawn away and bow down to them. So that's the second heaven. And then the third heaven is the heaven of heavens, the home of God, paradise. Each heaven is very different, but each heaven echoes the words of Psalm 19, where they all declare the glory of God. Now, Paul's experience would be enough to inflate anyone's ego. Of course you'd want to brag. Of course you'd want to say, hey, guess what? Guess where I've been? Guess what I saw? But he's kept it quiet. And so imagine the scenario. You've got these uh, Judaizers, these false teachers, these Greek scholars in all their robes and refinery and charisma and shiny white teeth and all. And then Paul, rugged, balding, short, monobrowed, squeaky-voiced, bug-eyed Paul. And they're talking. And these Greek speakers say, So Paul, you ever speak to the emperor? I have. He says, no, actually, I've never, I've never. I hope they want I speak to the emperor, but no, I've, I've never done that. Oh, right, okay. Uh, Paul, you ever uh, lecture in these uh, fine educational establishments, these seminary colleges? Uh, no, I haven't. Oh, really? I, I have. All right, okay. And it's the equivalent of St. Paul. You ever been to the White House? You ever have an audience with the Queen of Buckingham Palace? You ever speak to Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa? You ever had these conversations? And then in this one wee verse of Scripture, Paul kind of shows his cards a wee bit and says, well, actually, you know, now that you mention it, I, I do know a guy who was in the palace of heaven, who was with the king of kings. Um, yeah, it was me, but, you know, hey, I don't really want to talk about it. It's like, oh, somebody get the ice pack out because y'all just got burned. Paul just goes, you know, yeah, well, I'm just going to throw that out there. I'm just going to show that. But here's what's really important. Or what I found really the most challenging about this whole thing as, as I studied this. Notice the verses that are going to come right after this. This vision of heaven, this amazing, spectacular thing that happened to Paul. Listen to what immediately comes after. So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. We've all heard sermons about Paul's thorn in the flesh, haven't we? We've all heard the sermons and we've all heard the bits. But I need you to see the connecting verses. I need you to see that there's the picture of heaven, therefore the thorn. That's big. A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, 
I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God has a wonderful way of bringing balance to your life. I mean, I know these verses that we've just read. They're well known. They're often quoted. But genuinely, it it hit me with a freshness this week. This happened because of the visions of the third heaven. They came together. See, one of the hard things about trusting God about leaning on him as sovereign and as king is the belief that in our life, the mix, the balance, the burdens and the blessings, the visions and the thorns, that the balance is perfect because it's from a perfect God. We like to think that the thorn is a story about how when life gets hard, hang in there because God's going to turn it into something good. But actually, verse 7 is very clear. Sometimes we're given the thorns because we've already got it too good. And God wants there to be a wee bit more struggle in our life. And that's really hard to hear. But we know The children who get everything that they want are spoiled and obnoxious and they're just the worst, right? You know, we know that. We also know that too many burdens will crush us. We know that when life gets too hard, there's a chance that we just give up. Christmas time in particular is a time when a lot of people find it too hard. And the suicide rates go up. And it's hard. Which is why our prayer meeting on Thursday night is so important. We need to be praying for our people at Christmas time. It's a tough time. There's bereavements, there's sickness, there's loss, there's hurt. We need to be praying. But what we have here in 2 Corinthians 12 is the reminder that God is the expert of bringing balance into our lives, that we will never have too much to be overwhelmed, one way or the other. You remember the story of Job, I'm sure you do. But do you remember specifically his wife? In Job 2, 9 and 10, she turns to him and she's understandably grieving. She's lost her children as well. She's lost her home. She's lost her income. She's lost her husband. He's up in the ash in the leprosy colony. He's had to take himself away from her. She's lost everything as well. So she's struggling. And she says to her husband, who are you kidding, Job? Curse God and die. And then Job responds to her and says, you are being so foolish. You're speaking rash. You're speaking from an emotional place. Should we only accept good from God? 
his point is a powerfully profound one when you're saying it from his perspective. It wasn't, it's okay. God's going to do something good with this. He understood, number one, that God is sovereign. And so whatever he does, whether God gives or God takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. He was able to say that. But, but secondly, and specifically here, Job and Paul are saying, God works in our lives in such a way that will not break us, but will build us up. And that requires the blessings and the thorns. That's the point. Now, in the book of Job, Job will go on to admit that he gets to a point where he almost gives up, where he is at very much at breaking point. He felt overwhelmed. He felt the doubt. I'm not here saying it's easy. It's not easy. What I'm saying is that, that these men, Job and Paul, they understood it though. They were able to hang in there because they understood. For Paul, he received a thorn because this vision could have went to his head. That's honesty in Scripture. That's honesty from Paul. Saying, listen, I'm susceptible to pride. I could have easily went that way. God did this so I wouldn't. He saved me from sinning. <clears throat> now, many have spent a long time arguing about what the thorn might be. I don't think it's particularly important what it might be. Some might say epilepsy. Um, some might say that it was malaria. Some think it's a person. I definitely see the argument for it being a person. Um, maybe it was someone in particular that just wasn't going to go away. And Paul thought, this guy's going to win. I'm going to lose. The gospel's going to fall apart. What we do know, though, is, and what we can't be certain of, is that it was a big thing. This thorn wasn't a splinter. The language here was, I've been stabbed in the side. I've been stabbed into my flesh. I am of the opinion that it was an eye condition. We know that Paul had like a bug-eyed kind of condition that people made fun of him about. Excuse me, let me put a couple of verses up on the screen from Galatians 4. You know it was because of a body ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial that you didn't scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God of Christ, and then has become of your blessedness, I testified to you of that. You'd have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Which makes me think it was a condition of the eye that Paul had. <coughs> now Paul says, I stayed with you there because I was too sick to go anywhere else. Paul's condition was so bad that it impacted what he could do, how he could work, whether he could work or not. But ask Paul, can God work through someone who has an illness? He'd say, absolutely, yes. Because Paul would say that the church in Galatia was founded and established and grew because he had to take the time out on, on, of sick, because of sickness to be there, to stay there. And the friendships and the relationships that were there because of his sickness. So does God always heal? 
Is he always supposed to take away the thorns? Is he always supposed to take away the things that maybe eventually might actually help us? That he's doing something in our lives with. Should God take away the thorn if giving us the thorn was his idea? If giving the thorn was the thing that was going to help us to mature, to make us more dependent on him, to make us more sensitive to the hurts of others? No, he's not supposed to take the thorn away. Because then we wouldn't benefit. Look at verse 15 there in Galatians 4. His eyes were the issues. So how did he get the thorn? Maybe it was from being blinded on the road to Damascus. Maybe it was from being stoned in Lystra and one of the stones impacted his eye sockets. I don't know. But when we go back to 2 Corinthians 12, what we do know is that it was God who gave him the thorn. So you can talk about whatever way you want. It was God who did it. Because it was given to me. Given to me. Sometimes we like to think that every hardship and every trial is seating attacking us. We do a misjustice to the sovereignty of God when we do that. Sometimes it's God who brings us the thorns. And, and there we, we read about this messenger of Satan. And there's these parallels, these correlations between Paul and Job. Satan is looking to undermine the man, but God is drawing strict lines. Here's how far you can go. Here's where I give you permission to go, but you can go no further. Satan does a thing to destroy us, but God does a thing to develop us. One of my weaker subjects in school, of which, by the way, I had many, was um, chemistry. I loved chemistry classes. I loved being like some sort of mixing potions and seeing things like steam up and bubble and explode and all. I loved that. Yeah, great fun. I could have done that all day. Wasn't great at the exams when I actually had to remember why it happened. <coughs> But what I remember clearly from one of my classes was that chemicals like chlorine in and of itself are highly dangerous. They're poisonous. But if there's a chemical reaction between chlorine and something like sodium, it would create sodium chloride. And something that was a poison by itself was now something that would season our food because sodium chloride is salt. God knows how to season our lives with the right mixture of things, with the right combinations of blessings and thorns. And I know this isn't easy to hear. But there will be times when he will look at our lives and he will say, Jeff, you need a little bit longer in the oven. You need a wee bit more heat. You need maybe a wee bit more patience. So I'm going to have to put you in situations where your patience are going to be tried. And those muscles are going to be exercised. I'm going to have to put you in a, in, a, in a position where you're going to have to exercise your tenderness. You're going to have to exercise a wee bit of endurance. You're going to exercise your faith, which means it's going to be tested. 
These qualities don't come from books or blessings. They come from the thorns. In verse 8, Paul did the thing that we all would naturally do when the trials come. It's the natural thing. We go and we pray and we plead, Lord, take away the thorn. Take it away. It's too much. It's too hard. It's, it's stabbing me. And I love this from Paul. There's no theology of, well, if it's your will, God, he's on his knees. Lord, you've got to do something about the thorn. You've got to take it away. It's too much for me. Please. Take away the thorn. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands this morning, but I know many of you, and I know you would raise your hand if you were honest enough to do it. But aren't there people in church this morning who just would love nothing more than for God to take away the thorn? That's the only prayer you're praying. Lord, I can't do this. This is too hard. Because either you've been carrying it for too long and you're too tired to keep carrying it or it's out of the blue and it's just, it's not you for six. It hurts and there's frustration and there's worry and there's isolation and you look to heaven and you just say, God, would you just take away the thorn? I'm sorry, I can't stand here today and say that God will take the thorn away or that it'll happen anytime soon. What I can say is in a year where my family have had a couple of thorns to deal with and as someone who still has a couple of thorns in his side, Can I give you the words of chapter four that we did at the end of October now? We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. God said no to taking the thorn away because God knew that the thorn would not destroy him, it would develop him. So yes, Paul prayed. But please notice that Paul did get an answer to his prayer. The answer was no. No is still an answer. It's just not the answer any of us ever want. But it was the best answer. And Paul says, in the same way, these false teachers, they want to brag and they want to boast. Listen, I could do the same. I could talk about the stuff that I've seen. But God has done this thing to me and I'm staying focused. I'm staying humble. I'm staying away from the sin of self-sufficiency and pride. So yes, I'll delight in this, not in a sadistic joy. I don't enjoy the thorn. I don't like the thorn but I enjoy the fact that God is sustaining me with the thorn, that God is even able to use me with the thorn in my side. Glory to God. He can do this. I can't. It's always been about him. That's where the joy comes from. And seeing how every day God meets the need, even though the thorn is there. And so let me 
say this, because this is how Paul is phrasing it all. Even the thorn is a gift from God. And that is hard to understand and appreciate. Every year at Christmas, when I was growing up, whenever you opened all your presents, there was always two distinct piles. There was the pile with all the stuff that made the list, the stuff that you wanted, all right, the, the football stuff, the, the uh, new computer game, or, or whatever, you know, whatever all the stuff was that I wanted, that I made it on the list, okay, here's what I want, just make sure that's what's there for me on Christmas Day. And then there was a second pile that had stuff that was never on the list. Socks, boxers, Lynx deodorant slash Chargel combinations, and all the rest of it, all right? And there was always as much in that pile as there was in the other pile. And I was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> and then my mum would say to me, yeah, well, Jeff, you may not have wanted them, but you needed them. So too, our Heavenly Father gives us gifts. And sometimes there are gifts that are on the list. God, here's what I really want. I want, you to see the move. I want you to move in such a way. I want you to bless my family. I want you to save people. I want you to do that. Stuff that's on the list. And then there's other times where God is a good, loving Father. He says, I know this wasn't on the list. I know it's not what you wanted. But this is something that you needed. I've been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all in fear to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what you for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you. Forgive me this wrong. Best sarcasm here from Paul. Because the context from the previous chapter is these guys are criticizing me for not charging you money, for not being a burden. Well, forgive me for not burdening you with financial requests. I'm distracted with all the stuff God's doing in my life. Sorry for not being more of a burden. Verse 14. Here for a third time I'm ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Genuinely a beautiful, beautiful verse. I seek not what is yours, but you. So I'm not after your applause. I'm not after your cash. I'm not after the stuff that makes me feel important. That's not how it works in this relationship. As a leader, I'm the parental figure. You're the children. And so I'm here for you. I want to enrich your lives. I want to give to you. I'm not after your stuff. I'm after you, your heart. Verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? So he's saying, look, money, stuff, I'm going to spend for you. 
I'll pour myself out for you. I don't want to burden you. I want to lift burdens. Now, does that mean you're going to hate me because I'm not burdening you with money? Seriously? And he's making a mockery of this whole system, the way the false teachers have been working and exposing the difference between a leader who acts in love and draws you, uh, draws you near rather than a professional who's just going to do it for the cash. It's clinical. It's transactional. Paul says that's not how we do things. But granting that I myself do not burden you, I was crafty. You say, and got the better of you by deceit. <laughs> Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and send the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? <laughs> it's in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I feel that perhaps when I come, I may not find you as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they practiced. <coughs> One of the underlying things that Paul has been accused of, remember, is of being two-faced. And so he's saying, look, listen, unless you guys get yourselves in order, hey, you'll not see two-faced Paul. Trust me, I'll come honestly and we'll sort it out then. Time's up. Let, can I talk about the thorn a wee bit more? God didn't explain to Paul all the ins and outs of why the thorn came in the way it did and why it hurt the way it did. We don't always have the reasons. And the truth is, we love to think differently than this. We like to think that if we had the reasons, that it wouldn't hurt as much. If we could see what God was doing, if he would tell us in advance, okay, here's what's going to happen, Here's how much it's going to hurt. Here's how long it's going to last for. That that would make it easier for us. I don't think that's true. It doesn't make the pain any less painful. You break your arm. Knowing why your arm is sore doesn't change the fact that a broken arm is still really sore. And the same is true with emotional hurt. It's the same with psychological hurt. It's the same with spiritual. Being able to explain why the pain is there doesn't change the fact that the pain is there. And it's in those moments that it's not the reasons, but the resources that we hold on to. That's the key. His grace is sufficient. Paul admits that he thought God's goodness would mean the removal of the thorn. He prayed for the removal of God. If you're good, if you love me, would you get rid of this thorn? But he's realized in time that the power isn't in removing the thorn, 
but the power is in God supplying the grace throughout that time with the thorn. That even when Paul is under the cosh and struggling and wondering why and why me and how long and how long, O Lord, will you labor and burden me? He recognizes that God can still do great things through him. And maybe you're in church this morning, you're saying, you know, if life was a wee bit easier, I would serve more. Or if, if this thorn wasn't just so painful, I, I would worship more freely. And I could sing from the depths of my heart. But the problem is that when we think like that, what we're really saying is, God, I will not worship you. I will not serve you because I don't think you're going to be enough in these circumstances. That's ultimately what we're saying. And that's a very dangerous place to be in. And if that is where you are this morning, come talk to me. Come talk to one of the elders. Come talk to someone who you know, who you trust. Don't hold on to that burden. That's a dangerous place to be. Maybe we should be slower to find excuses and reasons to not serve and to not sing. But rather to seek to serve him with the thorn. To seek to sing with the thorn. That God's grace is sufficient and he can do great things in every circumstance. That nothing is impossible for our God. That no matter what's going on with me, Greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world. So I, he can still do it. Isn't it chapter four? Going back to chapter four a couple of times this morning, but chapter four says, so we don't lose heart. Even though the outer body is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day because this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. They say that if you take five pounds worth, uh, as in the value of five pounds, not the weight, five pounds of steel, you can forge them into a couple of horseshoes and sell it for 50 pounds. Or you could take the same five pound of steel and uh, refine it and make surgical knife points the, for scalpels and sell it for £1,500. Or you could take the same amount of steel, refine it and refine it and forge it and make nibs for fountain pens and you can make £32,000. Why the difference? The value comes from the time spent in the fire and in the forging. And I know that this is maybe not the message that you wanted to hear this morning, but maybe it's the one that you need. Maybe just like new socks at Christmas time, it's not something you'd ever put on your list. But this thorn that God has given to you is not meant to destroy you, but to develop you. It is not meaningless. It is not empty. It is doing something. Trust in the God who loves you 
more than you could possibly imagine. Let's pray.